Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. When have you seen your desires lead you into something that was not good? Nobody can relate to that, right? I mean, desires are an essential part of us being a human. God created us with desires. And I think we all know that sin has cast its dark shadow on our desires, causing them to too often being misplaced or disordered. That's why I can think of many examples in my own life of that where desires have led me to good things and they've also at times misled me to experiencing bad things. Some of the desires around what success looks like have taken me to some wise decisions in my career and other things have led me to really unhealthy overworking for way too long of time in my life. We also have desires to be liked and respected, don't we? Which can lead us to make healthy choices, but again, it can also mislead us when we're offended by negative feedback. We become defensive and feel devalued when someone may not see us as competent as we think we really are. We see how our desires, don't we, can shape our identity and how fragile our identity is when we need others' approval in order to feel good about ourselves. Our desires... Honestly, they determine our quality of life. They determine the trajectory of our lives. Because what I want kind of ends up determining what I do, doesn't it? What I think about, how I spend my time, what I spend my money on, and what I expect out of life, and desires even determine who I trust oftentimes. All these tendencies can cause you and I intense anxiety and distress when those, when those desires are misdirected. So as we work through Romans, we're going to see Paul developing, even very personally expressing, the struggle of our desires and our identity being formed in the midst of all the sin and brokenness leading us to a key life lesson which Paul has in all of Romans. It's learning to live more fully secure in God's love. So last week we touched on what Paul expands today in Romans, namely, if we don't know we are securely loved by God, and if we aren't living in the way God created us to live, then our desires will be misplaced or disordered. And disordered desires will not fulfill us in the long run because our, our, our desires guide us even when we don't realize it, they're guiding us. Our desires, therefore, can be really dangerous. Or they can be very good, again, depending on how they're directed. So when our desires of success and love and attention and hopes for the future and relationships become misdirected, the letdown can be really devastating to us. Misdirected desires result in us missing what we really need and want in life. So our goal as followers of Jesus is not to squash or minimize our desires. After all, one of the most beautiful promises in all of Scripture is in Psalm 37, 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I mean, God wants to fulfill the desires of your heart. But this verse is still often always taken out of context, context because a lot of times we think, well, I have this desire, and therefore God wants to fulfill it, and God is going to fulfill it in the way I want him to fulfill it. But in the context, the promise of God says, trust in the Lord and do good. 
dwell in the land, and befriend faithfulness. And then immediately after that promise, it says, commit your way to the Lord. So what that verse is actually saying is, yes, God does want to fulfill the desires you have, but God not only wants to fulfill those desires, he wants to shape your desires as you submit your life to him, giving you right, healthy desires instead of misplaced and disordered desires. In fact, let's go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis 3. In the first description of sin, God warns us that our desires will be warped and misplaced and disordered because of sin. In verses 14 through 16, which because of time will not read today, God shows that we have warped and misplaced desires around work in relation to the world, particularly around relationships, and even more specifically, our desires around sexuality and family relationships are warped by sin. This topic is really important in our world today. Because the shift in our culture over the past 60 years, 60 years or so, and in particular the last 25 years, has been to a place where desires and feelings define reality and define our identity. Yet while God says desires and feelings are wonderful, we also see in Scripture that, again, corrupted desires don't always lead us and represent God's good creation in us. They often mislead us. And when the rubber meets the road, I honestly think all of us recognize this to be true. We've all had experiences where our desires misled us. Desires too often are not sure guides to who we are and what we really want and need in life. So let's jump back into Romans, a book considered by many to be the greatest book in the New Testament. Two weeks ago, Jeremy talked about Paul's thesis for for the letter to the Romans, which is the gospel has the power to save. It is the only thing that can save, meaning the gospel is the only thing that can bring healing and health and wholeness. Last week, Paul showed us God was clearly revealed, clearly revealed himself both to us through creation and in us through our conscience. But he also talked about we often don't know that truth of We all don't want to know that truth about an all-wise, all-loving God. And Keller kind of summed it up this way, saying, we know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. So often we suppress the truth. Why? Because we like to be in control of our own lives, our own agenda. And then we ask God to do what we'd like him to do. We want God to orbit around us instead of us orbiting around God. It's just like our solar system. We used the illustration last week. It'll collapse if the sun tried to orbit around the earth. It doesn't work for us to be the center of our life. In our text, Paul uses an illustration today that is really crucial. It also happens to include one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, especially in today's world. I'm going to ask you to not get lost in the weeds of the controversy today. Otherwise, you will miss the big points Paul is trying to make. The details of the passage are important, but even more important is the big picture Paul is painting. It's a long passage that we must read in order to get the whole context and argument that Paul is developing. Before I read it, though, let me say this. If Paul were to begin this letter, he would probably begin it with dear Christians. Paul's talking to Christians, not those who are not followers of Jesus, That said, while Paul is not talking directly to you, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you are listening to the message today, 
what you can get out of this passage is the high level of compassion and love that God has for you. So stick with me to the end. Don't get lost in the weeds or you'll miss the main message. Start reading Romans 1. For I am not ashamed, we're going to repeat some of the stuff because we need the context today. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, the eternal, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. So Paul, we're going to pause right there. There's a lot more to read yet. But Paul uses a key interesting term translated here, unnatural. Contrary to nature or against nature or not according to the way we were created to be. Paul's word choice is referencing Genesis and the creation of men and women made in God's image. So he's saying our desires, our passions, clouded by sin, lead us to do things against the way we were created. Paul is describing in this portion, he'll describe more our disorder, but he's describing right here disordered sexual desires because of sin. Now, there's a lot more we could say about this, but we don't want to have time to get into it today. So I actually want to invite you to join Jeremy and I here at church for an open discussion on a biblical sexual ethic this Tuesday evening at 7 p.m., where we're going to wrestle with how God thinks about sex, specifically in regard to this passage and others related to it. We'll look at how people interpret the passage and others like it, and how this relates to our culture and, talk, and, and how we talk about sex in our culture today. Uh, just Tuesday's discussion, we're just kind of recommending that it be only open to adults. If you know you are coming, I want to encourage you to please RSVP on the Church Center app. It's there right now. You can do it right now while we're talking so that we can set up the right room and have enough chairs and tables in the right place so we can have a really good discussion. This is a really important topic in our world today. There are lots of voices that are speaking to this issue, and many of us have differing opinions. And I would, I would dare to say, few of us have looked at it really in depth as what the Bible does say, what it doesn't say, and how it says it. This will be an in-person only event. 
So Paul goes on. Furthermore, he says, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. So here he's talking about disordered economic desires. He goes on and says, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips and slanders. So he's talking about disordered social desires. They are God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. He's talking about disordered spiritual desires. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Disordered family desires. And Paul concludes the first section we are reading today saying, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. So Paul's not intending to give an exhaustive list here. He's just showing how the elevation of our desires over God's will affects every part of our lives, sexual, economic, social, spiritual, family. Paul has laid out a case of these Gentile sinners who are so messed up. And all the Christians he's writing this letter to at this point of his writing are probably saying, yeah, you tell them, Paul. But things are going to change. There's going to be a dramatic change in the pronoun. He's going to go from them to you. Paul turns from addressing what some people would say as those evil worldly sinners to addressing the church directly. And he says, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. See, what Paul has been doing through this whole thing is he's been setting up his audience to bring this 20-pound sledgehammer down on their head and basically say, you think you're better. You are no better at all. You who judge are sinful and blind, just like those you judge. Paul goes on and says in verse 2, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, you, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, pause there for a second. In the past, we've talked about how our culture totally misuses the biblical idea of do not judge. They just totally abuse it. Paul is not saying that we don't discern between right and wrong. That we, that, I mean, that would be absurd to not believe that murder is wrong or adultery is wrong or stealing is wrong or whatever else you want to put on that list is wrong. Neither is he saying we shouldn't talk to someone about what they are doing and tell them it is wrong. It would be absurd to assert that someone you know is being hateful or involved in sexual immorality or caught in addiction and you're not supposed to talk to them about the fact that what they're doing is unhealthy and wrong. In fact, for you to not say anything would be unloving and uncaring. Do not judge is not talking about talking about right and wrong, but rather do not judge refers to not condemning others or using that condemnation to differentiate yourself from another like I am better than you. Do not judge 
is a relational command of the good news of Jesus leading us to Paul's main point in the whole thing that he's talking about here. The gospel recognizes all of humanity starts on a level playing field. Everyone is sinful. Paul is describing what in theological terms is often referred to as the doctrine of total depravity. This is a misunderstood doctrine by most people. Total depravity does not mean you are as bad as you possibly could be. Total depravity simply means all of us are hopelessly caught in disordered desires and sin. The only way out for all of us is the saving work of Jesus. Every person's desires and identity are broken and needs to be changed and shaped and directed by God, our creator. This is a critical argument, a critical point in Paul's strategy. I I grew up being the consummate person Paul hits with this 20-pound sledgehammer. I grew up thinking I was so much better than those caught in addictions and sexual immorality and anger and greed and other types of sins. And when I had that attitude, other people thought of me as a self-righteous jerk. But the truth of what Paul is saying is, We are all caught in the same sin. We are just exhibiting different symptoms, different expressions of the same sin. You, therefore, he says, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, what's he saying there? Paul is not saying that these Roman Christians, that they are living in the exact same way, doing the same sins of everybody he listed in chapter 1. Most probably, many of them, maybe most, are not doing many of those sins listed there. But his point is they're still sinning the same. How can that be? How can murder and pride be the same sin? Well, Paul tells us actually earlier in Romans 121, we've already read it. For although they knew God, they neither glorified or honored him as God, nor gave thanks to him. To not glorify or honor God is the same as to not value or to reject God. That means the core of every sin, regardless of what it looks like, is the same. It's a rejection of God. Sin may look differently. There may be different symptoms. But choosing to reject God, whether it's in our finances, in obeying Him in giving, or in sexuality, or work, or how we spend our time, or language we use when we talk to people. It is all the same sin. That's why there's absolutely no difference between any of us. We are all rejecting God and doing what we feel is best versus what God said is right and best. Follower of Jesus, not a follower of Jesus, makes no difference. The antidote is to realize we are all the same. We are utterly caught in sin. And frankly, we all need mercy and compassion. And see, it's only when we recognize this point that we can actually start to truly give other people compassion and feel that compassion, which is the second critical point. Paul is trying to set us up here so that we will compassionately identify with every human being we run into. And this is what brings me hope. By creating a level playing field, 
Paul creates the only real opportunity we have to end judgmentalism or condemnation, the putting down of others in order to make us feel better about ourselves. By creating a level playing field, Paul creates the only opportunity we have for oppressed and oppressor to find reconciliation and bring true justice. Because only in realizing that we are all totally depraved on a level playing field can the space be actually created in which true compassion and love actually even has a chance to be birthed and come out. It goes on and says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Now you may say, that's confusing. God will repay every person according to what they've done. Did Paul change his mind about the gospel? Doesn't Paul say salvation is not earned by good works, but by a gift of faith alone? Let's understand this. Verse 6 is a quote from Psalm 62 where David, the psalmist, is complaining about how other people uh, say nice things to his face, but behind his back they lie about him and try to destroy him. And David says, with their mouths they bless, but their hearts curse me. Externally they may look right, they may even do religious behaviors, but internally they are filled with wickedness. And because of this, David says, you, God, reward everyone according to what they have done. So what Paul is emphasizing is God sees the heart. When he evaluates us, it's not about outward behaviors, but about the inward orientation and transformation of our heart. Paul points in Romans 2 that says that religion is often just a a thin veneer is what his point is. It's a thin veneer papered over a heart that is still every bit as sinful as everyone else's. And that religion by itself is powerless to change our hearts. It might change a few behaviors, but nothing deeper. Romans 2 tells us that on the final day, God is going to look past the surface behaviors and look at our heart and the desires and the motives and why we do what we do. You may ask, am I going to be judged by my works or my heart motivation? What will determine my future? Let's, Let's be clear. It is grace, not by any works, that you are saved through faith. But the reality is, your life is the best illustration of what you actually believe. Faith is not just words, it is a heart change. Repentance is not just raising your hand and joining a church and getting baptized, it is the Holy Spirit taking residence in your heart and making you new and being the leader of your life, transforming your life step by step for the rest of your life. See, when Jesus takes residence in your life, it will make a difference. Our faith leads us to live differently, including our desires and God shaping our identity. See, God loves us and accepts us as we are, but he loves us enough to not let us stay where we are if we really follow him. So what does your life reveal about your belief and your surrender to Jesus? 
Tim Keller comments on it in this way. He says, it's actually possible to trust in Christianity rather than Christ. There are two ways of being human in the world. One is to trust our own human abilities, and the other is to radically trust God. And Jesus makes it clear the way we're supposed to go when he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. And see, this is not an easy fix to change our hearts, is it? Jesus is not talking about making service changes and, and think our hearts are okay. He's calling for an abandonment of our entire pervasive, deeply entrenched identity and patterns of being self-focused so we can become connected with God and his love in a deeper union. Because the truth is, we can actually begin a relationship with God with a genuine experience, and then we can easily fall into trying to do the rest through religion without God the rest of our life. We continue to be in control of our lives and attempt to have God in our life on our own terms. When we do this, we miss the main point of what it is to be in a relationship with God and to follow Jesus, which is to have an intimate, loving union with God to whom we surrender our desires and our ways in how we live and how we love others and how we think about truth and good and life. So as we close, I just want to reemphasize Paul's purpose in seeing how our problem today is not a problem of oppressor and oppressed or of good and bad, of right and wrong. The problem of today is that we will never bring healing when we are divided. And the only way we can stop being divided is to identify with one another in the reality of what and who we are. We are all caught in sin. We all need compassion. We all need forgiveness. We all need healing. We all need desperately to be saved by Jesus. And see, this is the foundation block for understanding the gospel. And Paul has set up that foundational understanding brilliantly in this text. When you don't get lost in the weeds of what he, sa what he said, even though the weeds are important, when you see the big picture of what Paul is doing, he is setting all of us up to identify with one another, to grow in compassion toward one another's struggles, and to turn us all to the healing love and the power of the gospel. And this is so like Jesus. I mean, Jesus came to live with us. He compassionately loved and befriended the worst of the sinners so that the religious people railed on him for it. See, not understanding this lesson from Paul is the reason our culture and many churches are fragmenting today. By labeling people as either oppressors or oppressed, the only outcomes that labeling can bring is a lashing out of anger and a creation of more offense. It's a vicious cycle that our culture is in today. And it will continue to be a vicious cycle until the cries for change come, of, come from a place that begins with this gospel humility that recognizes we are all sinners in need of forgiveness and redemption. This is the power of the gospel. Your worth, your goodness, your health, your identity, your healthy desires are found in God's love for you. All of our desires, whether it's about work or success or family or sexual desires, all need to be examined and surrendered to God so that they can be well-placed instead of misplaced by the corruption of sin. 
So let God speak into your desires. Let him change that. As we walk it out this week, maybe ask yourself and consider two questions to ponder prayerfully with God. Do a heart check. Ask the Holy Spirit to identify two of your main desires. And then ask yourself and and prayerfully think about this. How have you invited and made room for God to shape those desires and allow him to fulfill those desires? Second application question. How have you lived either believing you were better than others or believing you were worse than others? Both are wrong because God's grace meets us all on a level playing field. And it is only on that level playing field that we both experience and then we learn to be compassionate to one another. And I want to invite you again to join me Tuesday evening, 7 p.m. here at the church. We'll discuss a biblical sexual ethic, go into this in more detail. Think, we'll try to think more deeply about sexuality than desires and feelings, which is kind of where a lot of the arguments leave it in today's world. Would you stand with me as we pray? So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would come into this room right now. You're already here, but I I just bless your work in each of us. Lord, I know that there's so many ways that I still sin and reject your ways. I believe that I can do it better. I take back control. I argue with what you say is good. I pray that you'd help all of us to be able to recognize those areas and surrender them to you. That our desires can become brilliantly shaped by you and awesomely fulfilled in you. That we would experience the depth of peace and joy and purpose that you long for us to have. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to catch ourselves when we start comparing ourselves to others. And instead, you would begin to grow an identification with other people and a compassion and a love and a mercy that we would become the most merciful, kind, loving people on the face of the planet. So Lord, as we turn our hearts now to sing this song, would you take the words of this song and help us express our hearts to you in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.